Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. I got a symptom in my mind. A black cat that makes me blind. A TV set that tastes like wine. Cryogenic endocrine. It keeps the lizards changing size. Just like Bird I Gordon. Richard, that song was called Bert I. Gordon. It's by a group called New Planet Trampoline from the 2015 album The Wisconsin Witch House, available at, this is a new one, Bandcamp. Ah, Bandcamp. We're doing another retrospective. This month, we are covering the films of writer, producer, actor, and director Bert I. Gordon. Mr. B.I.G., Mr. Big who uh, did just recently pass away, which is how I kind of got the idea to do a retrospective. He died on March 8th of this year, 2023, at the age of 100 and was making films uh, as recent as 2015. What films are we covering today, sir? The Spider or Earth versus the Spider from 1958 and... A Delectable Dish, The Food of the Gods from 1976. Two very different films. <laughs> 58, Mr. Big at his peak. 57, 58, he was cranking out the classics. Food of the Gods, a different time period for Mr. Big, 1976. Who are you, sir? What qualifies you to be discussing these movies? My qualifications. I am Richard Chamberlain from monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Let's call the meeting to order. We have not a lot of feedback this episode, but we have a lot of new members to our Facebook group page, which you can find on Facebook at the Classic Horrors Club podcast. So let's run through this list. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining. Dennis Bryan. Hammer Shots. Violet Stegman Mullins, Jody Lynn, David E. Queen, Jamie Dominey, Martin Robinson, Ayla Grace, Doug Jones, Stephen Harris, Andrew Carew, Chris Scales, Thiago Castro, Gerard Schultz, Roger Fuller, and our latest member, Dr. Defective's Mad Scientist's Laboratory. Welcome, one and all. We do have one email that we got that I want to share. It's from our friend Vince Simonelli. He uh, had some feedback for our William Castle episode last month. Let me start off by saying I am an ardent William Castle apologist. His body of work encompasses some of my favorite films. Some, admittedly, are better than others, but most are a lot of fun. I enjoyed your discussion of Macabre and The Nightwalker and agree with many of your points, though I'm probably a little more kind in my opinion of his films. Macabre feels like Castle is just starting to get his feet under him in the horror genre, whereas The Nightwalker is Castle comfortable with his shtick. And yes, how great is Vic Mizzy's score? Thanks for another enjoyable show. I got the impression from some comments near the end that you're not fans of Sons of Dracula, Son of Dracula. I know it's popular to say Lon Chaney was miscast, but I find his performance very menacing. 
I consider Son of Dracula to be a great horror noir from Robert Siodmak, very mature for the universal output in the 40s. Best, Vince Simonelli. Thank you, Vince. We appreciate that. I would agree with his comments about Son of Dracula being almost noirish. That is an, an interesting way to take a look at that. I don't know if that would change my opinion of that film, but it might change the way I look at it the next time I watch it. And I will watch it again at some point. Richard, tomorrow, as we record, is Mother's Day. And I think it's appropriate that we give a shout out to our mothers. I specifically will thank my mother, Kareen, and my brother, Jay, who I know are listening and they've been chomping at the bit for our new episode. Hi, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Hi, Jay. Rich, who you got? Well, I, I will have to say as well, you know, hi, Jeff's mom. <laughs> Jeff's brother. I will certainly recognize my mom, who does not listen to the show. <laughs> but my mom always does love to hear what's going on. She doesn't understand a lot of the whole idea of podcasts, but she's always very supportive, always offers up kind words. So I will also give a shout out to uh, my lovely wife, mother of two children, Uh, not our children together, but she's still a wonderful mother. I will also give a shout out to my daughter, the mother of my grandsons, and, and she's doing it right. And apparently I've done something right. In fact, just this past Monday, they come to our house every every Monday for dinner. And uh, what was she wearing? Her classic Horrors Club podcast shirt. That's fantastic. And happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Of course, this will be two weeks later, but it's a thought that counts, right? Mother's Day is every day of the year. Oh, yes. <laughs> Vince sent his email to us at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. That's one way you can send feedback. We also have a phone number, which I had to send ourselves a fake call to keep it from being deactivated. So we haven't had feedback in quite a while, but you can leave it by calling 616-649-2582. That's 616-649-CLUB. And I also want to remind everyone that we do have a YouTube channel at Classic Horrors TV. You will find a companion of some sort to all of our audio podcasts to enhance your experience. For now, we have got a B.I.G. episode. I think we need to get started. Kick it off. Who is this Bert I. Gordon, Richard? Where did he come from? Bert Ira Gordon was born on September 24th, 1922 in Kenosha, Wisconsin. His nickname, Mr. Big, obviously is a play on his initials, B-I-G. And that was actually given to him many years later by the legendary Forrest J. Ackerman of Famous Monsters Magazine fame. And he gave it because many of Bert Gordon's films feature giant creatures or giant people, especially in the late 1950s. That's how you know him now as Mr. Big. I guess is his gateway drug, if you will, into the world of filmmaking really came on his 13th birthday when his aunt gave him a camera and he started making 16 millimeter movies. And it was during this time that he really became fascinated with how the camera could depict people larger than they were or growing. At the age of 13, he was pretty much setting the course for what so many of his movies would do. He would attend the University of Wisconsin before joining the Army during World War II. With the end of World War II, he would marry 
Flora Lang on June 3rd, 1945. They were married until 1979 and had three children, a daughter by the name of Susan Gordon. She was born in 1949. She became an actress in her own right. She appeared in a lot of her father's films, amongst other films as well. And she died on September 11th, 2011, at the age of 62 of cancer. So sadly, she uh, preceded her father in his passing. And he also had two other daughters just before the birth of his uh, daughter, Susan. He started work in early television, doing some early television commercials. He was apparently editing British feature films to fit a 30-minute TV time slot. Apparently was a thing. I didn't know this. And this takes us up to 1950. Now, 1950 is really when the, the TV work and film work is starting to really come to play. Do you have anything else on the early years of Mr. Big? I've got a couple things. And I do want to say I should have mentioned the first that I have got several reference sources for this. And the first is this autobiography, The Amazing Colossal Worlds of Mr. B.I.G. by Bert I. Gordon. So some things are in his own words that I'll be sharing. Have an issue of Rumorg magazine. This is from 2015. We'll come back to that later. And then when we talk about Food of the Gods, this is the most amazing, incredible, fact-filled information that we can have about Food of the Gods. It is from a book called Giant Monsters of Filmland. And this is an essay on Food of the Gods written by I mean, to be honest, one of the best writers I've ever read, Mr. Jeff Owens. We'll be referring to that when we talk about Food of the Gods. First of all, he, growing up as a kid, he loved all movies. He's like a kindred spirit because he liked all movies except slapstick. Of comedy, though, his favorite, and I thought you'd appreciate this, was Laurel and Hardy. Oh. This is a little sad, and you probably know something of this, Richard, and I don't really want to go into it, but I wanted you to be sure that you knew that in his later years... After Oliver Hardy died, Mr. B.I.G. called Stan Laurel and they were discussing a movie deal. And he wanted to make a movie about the personal relationship between Laurel and Hardy. He says, I figured that they had been a team for so many years. There must have been a great friendship they shared. Stan told me that a personal relationship between them did not exist, except on the sound stages when making a movie. This book refers to him getting the camera from his Aunt Jean on his ninth birthday. Don't know if you mentioned when he was making TV commercials and editing those films. He lived in St. Paul, Minnesota, so just across the river from where I am in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. Supposedly one day, you know, while he was still in Minnesota, he looked in the mirror and he said, hey, I'm not making movies. I can't do this here. And that's when he headed out to Hollywood. He was a production assistant on the television series Racket Squad in the early 1950s. 1954 is when I have his first official film. He was the producer and cinematographer on a classic film (laughs) called Serpent Island. Have you had a chance to see Serpent Island? I I have not. Okay. Is Serpent Island something that should be on your list? Yes, if you're a completist, which I know sometimes you can be. Should it be high on the list? Absolutely not. Should it be at the bottom of the list? Well, I haven't seen some of his 80s and later films, so I can't say definitively, but let's just say it should be towards the bottom of the list. 
I apparently saw this film 10 years ago. It literally popped up as a Facebook memory in the last <laughs> month or so. What? Serpent Island. I didn't know what that was. I hadn't begun the research on Mr. Big yet, so I didn't even know that that was his film. I had no recollection of seeing this film. It's not good, folks. It's not. It runs just over an hour long. It it comes across as like part travel log. There's a lot of scenery on a sailing ship. And it all has to do with this woman who is trying to get this treasure that her family was aware of at one point, and it's on some island. And so she hires a kind of beach bum, so to speak, to be her guide. And then there's the captain of the ship is out for the gold and both are trying to get the attention of the young woman. And it takes forever to get to the island. And once we get to the island, it's like, hey, more stock footage. If all the stock footage on the ship wasn't enough, now we have stock footage of voodoo ceremonies, mm-hmm. which I guess is kind of interesting, but then gets really boring because it's the same dance routine and the same chickens. And it's like, we've seen a lot of the serpent. You know, you expect a giant snake or something. Nah, it's a snake. It's a big snake. Granted, it looks like a boa constrictor. It pops up, I think, in maybe the last five minutes of the film. But it's in color, interestingly enough. Oh, for wow. 1954. That's interesting that you said about the scenery and the, like the travelogue, because I'm jumping ahead. But if, as you look at all these movies, that's something he did more often than not was he wasn't satisfied with where he physically was to make his movie. He went places to get, even if it wasn't the actors, you know, to get backgrounds or to get scenery. He talks in his book a lot about traveling. It must have been important to him was the, like the appearance and the location and having it. I think the authenticity, yeah, yes, was yes. definitely something that you could see present in this very first film. 1955, he directs his first film, King Dinosaur. It's an odd little film. The dinosaur, if you will, is actually a a lizard that's kind of played off to be a a dinosaur. It's a crazy plot that has to do with a planet that comes into our part of the galaxy. And it's like a twin to Earth. It's wandering the galaxy. It's like, hey, you know, it pops up. And so naturally, we, we send people on a rocket ship to go explore the planet. They send two couples and arguably... One of the men should have been on the ship. The others had no business being on the ship. And it's a planet that, hey, here's the surprise. It has an atmosphere just like ours. They do the quickest countdown to launch their ship. I mean, literally, it's like five, four, three, two, one, (laughs) bam, and it blasts off. This is where we start to see the rear projection that he used so often in many of his films, which probably the best way to go about it in the 1950s. But unfortunately, he was still doing this in the 1970s. And by that point, it did not look good anymore. It looks okay in this film. Yeah, there's some giant things going around and a bit of a spoiler here, but it's ultimately it's, you know, the humans come off not looking really good because like there's the giant king dinosaur who's not bothering anybody. It's his planet. They And but gosh, we got to kill him. They decide, well, hey, you know what? We did bring that nuclear bomb along. I think we should set that off. And that's what they do. It's like they just blow stuff up. Not a great film, but not a horrible film. Worth checking out at least once, but go in with low expectations. Things get a little better by 1957. 
we have the beginning of the end with Peter Graves, right? Peter Graves is that one. That's the giant grasshopper film. Not the best of the giant bug movies. Again, yeah, you got that rear projection thing going on, which causes some problems and wasn't looking quite as good as some of the other giant bug movies, but actually still enjoyed beginning of the end. We covered that way back in episode seven in 2017. We combined it with a monster bash theme. I posted a link to it on the Monster Movie Kid blog as I'm covering the films of Burt Gordon on that blog for the month of May. Good conversation on that movie. And you also get to hear some audio from Burt Gordon from Monster Bash in 2017, where both Jeff and I had an opportunity to meet him. I know we did an episode about it, but just in general, how do you like that one? I, you know, I like it. It's not my favorite of the giant bug movies, but I remember enjoying it. It's got Peter Graves. I like Peter Graves a lot. I remember enjoying beginning of the end. What about you? Do you you have any? Uh, Yeah, it's actually, it's one of my favorites of his. Not sure why, but one of the things he does in his book is he talks about the reception of the films, how much money they made and what the critics thought. And one of the critics said that beginning the end follows the pattern of many of the creature or monster pictures recently released, but it maintains suspense better than most. And the effects are splendidly done which I sort of agree with. He follows up the beginning of the end. There's the Cyclops, which is his first giant man movie. I guess the best way to describe it. It does star Lon Chaney Jr. in a supporting role. If I recall, he plays a drunk pilot. He may not play it drunk, but he probably was drunk while he was filming it. The character of the Cyclops looked a lot like the amazing Colossal Man and War of the Colossal Beast. Yeah. The scenario is different. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's been a long time. I can't really comment. The book, I don't know the timeline, and these were all 1957, but he actually talks about the Cyclops before beginning of the end, and he claims that he made the Cyclops because he wasn't getting any good scripts, so he just decided to write one himself. He went to Mexico, like we said. He liked to go and get footage and was arrested because he wasn't supposed to be down there filming And then a critic said that in this movie, depicting the effect of atomic radiation on humans was new. Of course, it seems like there were many, many movies, but I just wonder, was this one of the first ones? If it wasn't the first, I guess it would be one of the first. One of the first, yeah. Yeah. So he follows it up with the amazing Colossal Man, which has to do with a giant man again. He does Attack of the Puppet People, and then he does... War of the Colossal Beast, which is the direct sequel to The Amazing Colossal Man. Now, we covered The Amazing Colossal Man and War of the Colossal Beast way back in April of 2017 in episode four, which has also just been remastered and uploaded in the feed. So you can finally listen to it for the first time in several years. It was on our old original feed. I do enjoy these films. Yeah, there's certainly some questions along the way from a science perspective. How is he getting enough food to survive? Which I think they kind of touch on a little bit in the movie. Also address the fact that it's starting to affect him mentally. Yes, yes. By the time you get to War of the Colossal Beast, I mean, he's he's no longer who he was in the first film. He's just become kind of a rampaging giant man beast. I do really enjoy both of these films. What are your thoughts on Amazing Colossal Man, War of the Colossal Beast, Beginning of the End are like my three favorite. Amazing Colossal Man was, he said, the first of a four-picture deal with American International Pictures. 
in the book, it's interesting. He talks a bit about Amazing Colossal Man and why he can always bring a movie in on budget because he just did everything himself. The writing, the producing, the directing, the special effects. Attack of the Puppet People, just backtracking just a little bit, is kind of the reverse. We don't have giant people. We have shrunk down people. We have a mad scientist, basically, who's come up with this idea to shrink people down. This one, of course, stars John Agar. You got a leap of logic in some of these films. It's like there's some of the people who are already shrunken down seem kind of happy and just content with being small, which seems kind of weird. <laughs> I enjoyed it. John Agar made it maybe a notch above simply because of his screen presence. One thing I did have about Attack of the Puppet People, and by the way, he said that was the most fun film that he made. That could very well be because his daughter was featured in that. The story goes that there was a child in the movie. This actress came in red as could be, temperature of 104, and Bird Eye Gordon it sounds like it was pretty rude with the mom. Like, what did you do? Bring this kid in, you know, and sent her home. And just at that moment in walked his daughter, Susan with her Brownie troop. She said, daddy, can we watch you make your movie? And a light bulb went on. She sort of had the same look, I guess, of this girl that was sick. And he handed her the script and said, Hey honey, can you learn these lines? And she said, I already know them. I read the script at home. (laughs) And, That was her introduction into acting and into his films. This takes us to our first official film that we're taking a look at, Earth versus the Spider, better known as the Spider. Enter the cavern of unknown horrors. Listen. What's that noise? I don't know. See the only existing specimen of a spider, bigger than a human. Men had better find out what made this creature so big and find out fast or we're all going to be in pretty serious trouble. For shocking, skin-crawling excitement, meet face-to-face 50 creeping tons of black horror. See the spider. Investigating her father's disappearance, high school student Carol Flynn and her boyfriend Mike Simpson discover a big cave and an even bigger spider. Armed with rifles and as much DDT as they can find, the kids, their high school science teacher, and the local sheriff attempt to put an end to a terrifying threat, the spider. The spider was written by Laszlo Goreg and George Worthing Yates directed, of course, by Bird Eye Gordon. It stars all-star cast, Ed Kimmer, June Kinney, Eugene Person, Gene Roth, none of which I had heard of, and he does mention in the book this one didn't really have any big name stars. It runs 73 minutes. I enjoyed this one. This was fun. It's a giant bug movie that had a, a, a good cast and some leaps of logic, but I actually thought, for the most part, the special effects played off well it matches what other giant bug movies were at the time probably the weakest special effect was the web which was really just a series of ropes oh i was gonna say the end when the spider is sort of just hanging there yeah that's not a real spider and it's no no filled with lard that's 
hanging yeah. there. Yeah, that's a pretty rough shot. I, I forgot about that. Most of it, most of the movie, though, actually, I think plays off rather yeah. well. Yeah, uh, I liked it. I This was a first time watch, and I think it was like the perfect drive-in movie. It just really had the nostalgia of the small town and the high school kids. And I could just see watching that at the drive-in during that era. I really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Perfect drive-in movie. So definitely a fun film, and the writing team of Laszlo Gorag and George Worthing Yates got a lot of cred. Laszlo Gorag also did The Mole People and oh. a film called The Land Unknown. George Worthing Yates was a frequent collaborator with Burt. He also did The Amazing Colossal Man, Attack of the Puppet People, War of the Colossal Beast, a film called Tormented, which we'll talk about here shortly. He also did the biggest giant bug movie of all time, Them. Conquest of Space. It came from beneath the sea, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and Frankenstein 1970. Definitely some, some great films there between those two. Mr. Big himself he did the story, initial story, and then the screenplay, of course, was done by Gorag and Yates. He produced and he directed it. A lot of great team behind the camera and in front of the camera. I think we had an adequate cast, but as you said, nobody big. There was no John Agar to elevate this film. One Everyone, cast member that was not adequate, in my opinion, and that was the, the person that played Michael, the, the boyfriend. I thought he was pretty lifeless and, uh, and not a good actor. Do you have anything on him? Did he go on and do anything else? <laughs> he did very little. I figured. Uh, Gene Person. He had done some TV and film. Probably the biggest claim to fame besides this film is he was in, and take this for what it's worth, the uh, Ma and Pa Kettle film series, mm. Country Bumpkin Humor. He played multiple roles. I think he played one of Ma and Pa's kids, but it looked like he may have played two different kids at one point. I guess they were looking for a lifeless kid and said, well, here, you can just fill in this role. I thought that Ed Kemmer as Professor Art Kingman, I think he did a good job. Yeah, He did lots of TV work. Interestingly enough, he played the flight engineer in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, the 1963 Twilight Zone episode with William Shatner, best known as Captain Kirk from Star Trek. And that's one of my very weak Star Trek connections, mm-hmm. but I'll make it. He was also in an episode of One Step Beyond. Carol Flynn, the lead female, played by June Kenny, she was also in Attack of the Puppet People. She was also in Thriller, the Boris Karloff series. She was also in Village of the Giants, which we'll be talking about here in a little bit. I think the other main character was the sheriff, Sheriff Cagle, played by Gene Roth. Familiar face, absolutely. Character actor and a lot of film and TV work. I was interested to see some of the films he did, though. He was in Twilight Zone, which didn't surprise me. I don't remember him, but he was apparently in Twice Told Tales with Vincent Price. Planet of the Apes TV series, Tower of London in 62, Vincent Price and Lon Chaney Jr., Tormented. In that film, he plays a uh, hot dog stand vendor or somebody out on the beach. He was also in Attack of the Giant Leeches, She Demons, and a lot of Westerns earlier on in his career, where he played a lot of sheriffs. And I think he did a good job because he was character after he knew exactly what was expected. Play the aggravating police sheriff who won't believe the kids in the first place ends up finally believing him when there's a giant spider <laughs> rampaging the town. It's like, well, gosh, I guess I believe you now. The one thing I thought with this film that was interesting is the use of DDT, which, of course, by today's standards, we know 
you can't use DDT because it's it's too toxic. But there was a time, and I remember this back in the 70s, when my dad would spray the yard. He'd go to the store and he'd get the DDT and he'd mix it up in his container, spray the yard, all the toxic chemicals killing off all the creatures in the yard. DDT has been banned. Boy, they had plenty of it just lying around and that's what they were using to eventually try to wipe out the spider. As it began rampaging, I I thought it was funny, of course, you know, there's something a little different from the typical giant bug movie is that. So once we discover that there's this giant spider in the cave, they end up capturing the spider. And then let's bring it to the high school gym. Where there's going to be a dance tomorrow night. There's going to be a dance. We'll have the spa. He's drugged up. Spider will be fine. And then, of course, what do you get in late 1950s movies? Well, hey, here's a rockabilly band or a rock band that we're going to practice. And yeah, you know, all the teenagers look like they're 30 years old because they probably were. But let's go ahead and have a practice. Well, of course, then there's all the kids that we want to get into the gym, too. And hey, we'll we'll hear you practice and let's just have a dance. And uh, (laughs) so then you have another familiar face, and that's the janitor. Did you recognize Hugo the janitor? No. Okay, character actor Hank Patterson, better known as Fred Ziffel from Green Acres. Really? Yes. He was a, a character actor, appeared in several Burt I. Gordon films, oftentimes as a janitor. He played uh, Henry in The Amazing Colossal Man, then he was a janitor in Attack of the Puppet People, and essentially is playing the same character here. He's the one that tells the kids, you can't go in there. And, well, okay, kids, I'll let you in, but just don't do anything bad. Well, of course, they wake up the spider, and the spider comes and rampages, and Mr. Ziffel doesn't make it. He also played a character called Dave in The Beginning of the End. I immediately recognized him as Fred Ziffel, the owner of Arnold the Pig in Green Acres. You mentioned some of these things that are kind of funny. Another one is that when they... First go to look for her father and they go to the cave. Big signs, danger, no trespassing, do not enter. So what do they do? They go right in. They go right in. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, if people didn't do it, most movies would last about five minutes because it takes away all the danger. I would love to find a cave out in the in the countryside with a sign that says danger in front of it. Would I go in it? Probably not because I know that there's going to be a giant spider or a robot monster hiding out in the in the cave. Or the Batmobile might come speeding out and run you over because that was Bronson Cave where... Well, this is true. And so that would take... I could go to the Batcave, though. That would be kind of cool. Maybe I would go in there. You mentioned the kids looking too old. I didn't think they were too bad except for Joe, the guy that had the wagon that he would loan to them to <laughs> yes. drive. Man, how many times was he held back because... <laughs> he, he was freaking old. He had wrinkles. And... Oh, he looked like he was mid-30s. Easy. Yeah. You mentioned the special effects, and we jumped the gun and talked about the one I thought was awful. There was also a little bit of transparency, but you even had that in Tarantula, where you, did. you, know, you can at, at some point kind of see through the spider. Oh. I thought it was coincidental after the spider wakes up and gets out of the school and starts to go on the rampage through town that the science teacher's wife 
is at home and he's of course worried about her and of all the houses in the town that's the one the spider goes right up to and peeks in the window i love that little yeah. reminiscent of king kong a little bit with the, the big old eye looking through the window yeah you know there's a lot that's silly but it's just charming and really fun i liked it quite a bit and it is gruesome my goodness the beginning when the father is killed in the pickup that's bloody you say that from a movie like this and you think, oh, yeah, they showed a body with blood. This was seriously, that was a, well, a gory scene. Going back to the Cyclops, I mean, the scene of like the spear going in the eye and blood coming from the eye, that's pretty gruesome for 1950s, which is why it was later edited from television. Now, by today's standards, is it? I guess not. But, you know, back then, yeah, pretty gruesome. Mr. Big had a more gruesome side to him a little bit. He pushed the envelope and it still got to the theaters. Added a, a, a little bit, I think, to it, honestly. Yeah. And I thought the ending was genuinely suspenseful. I mean, the kids trapped in the cave. They explode the entrance to trap the spider, not knowing the kids are in there. So they're trapped and then trying to get away from the spider and narrow little ledge with a, a cliff in front of them. I mean, very... Uh, yeah, it was legit suspenseful, I thought. I thought so. I, I thought the cave sequences were well done. Now, you know, you've always have the well, awful well-lit caves, you know? <laughs> you can certainly see, yeah, well, you got to do that because if it's too dark, you don't know what's coming on. You gotta and that is a, a thing I mentioned earlier, Carlsbad Caverns. Bert I. Gordon wanted to film there at yes. Carlsbad Caverns and could not. They couldn't bring all the equipment in and the continued exposure to light would have caused damage or caused stalactites or stalagmites to fall or, or whatever. So he went in by himself and filmed all the backgrounds and using same effects that, like you said, he's going to use for 20 years with the split screen and with the rear projection and all of that. I thought it did a pretty good job of incorporating that and having it look like the kids were really there. By 1950 standards, that rear projection is, is acceptable because you see that in a lot of films. And you continue to see it on into the 1960s. It enhanced the scene, honestly, and actually, I think, worked perfect. Yeah, I mentioned the, the spider web. Yeah, okay, that looks, you know, it's a rope. <laughs> it's, it's, it is. But you go with what you got. And I, I'm not sure that any other giant spider movies did any better around that time period, to be honest with you. Yeah, it, I didn't actually mind the web in the cave, but at the beginning when they found the piece of web on the road where the father had died, I mean, this is a movie about a freaking giant spider. I didn't even make a connection that that was web. I'm like, what is a piece of rope doing there? Oh, and there was a funny part too, I think, where they're in the sheriff's office and there's a real little spider. Mm. And I don't know. I don't think it's the sheriff. I think it's the boy's father who yeah, just either shows up in the middle and you're not really sure who he is at first. But he like smashes the spiders. I think we've got enough spiders around here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was pretty funny. There's definitely some funny scenes. I think there was another missed opportunity. And that was just at the very end. Killed the spider and they're chatting and. They say he's dead until some egghead comes along and digs it up again. And then it says the end. They needed a big question mark, you know? Yeah, the sequel could have yes. easily been done. 
my thought is, well, was there more? Yeah. And they discover all these other caves within the caves and they even talk about how there must be an endless number of them. So sure, there's got to be more. I would think there'd be more. Is there only one entrance to the cave or is there you know, a way for the spider to get out on the other end? Yeah. Well, there's two now because they blasted through the top. Well, nowadays, someone may be building a franchise. Interesting that I think it's Mike, the boyfriend works at the movie theater, which is showing the amazing Colossal Man. Yes. And then also, if you look carefully, there's lobby cards for Attack of the Puppet People. That's kind of fun. There's not a lot of character development, but when the kids are in the cave, we kind of learn some things. Carol and Mike are talking about what happens if they die and... They find this place where a man had been trapped and he wrote on the wall and that causes them to reflect on life. And like, who's going to miss you when we're gone? And and we learn that, again, Mike's not the greatest actor, but she's like, who's going to miss you? And well, my mom's in the hospital having a baby. And then I, yeah, I forgot about yeah. that line. Like, and then Carol's Carol, who, of course, has lost her father. Well, her mother couldn't handle another loss. But then that kind of goes fleetingly by and they realize they're hungry and he remembers he has a candy bar. I thought that was hilarious. It's like, so your mom's having a baby. (laughs) You're out. I I get it. It's not your baby, but it seemed weird. The daughter, because after the father is missing and they, I don't think they confirmed that he was dead yet. The daughter is like moping around on the couch. The mom comes in and is like, you know, you need to get off that couch and get out there and have some fun. And I'm like, this is, <laughs> the morning period must be like 10 seconds because it's like they didn't say that they were divorced or anything. But the mom shows no sign of grief, no sign of worry that her husband is apparently out there or not out there. It could be gone. Definitely a little bizarre. We talked about the spider legs at one point, and I see a note here that they use straw from brooms to to give that fur on the spider mm. leg. Yeah, you always see those in, in the films, the, the appendages, you know, show up and it, oh, it always comes across as a little cheesy because it's always not quite lifelike. But I kind of thought this worked in this one. I mean, yeah, not bad for, for what it was. Here's a little other tidbit or two. During the spider's attack on the town, the short alleyway that the city bakery truck backs out of before it wrecks, it's the same location where Atticus Finch spends the night in order to protect Tom Robinson from being lynched and to kill a mockingbird. Hmm. Popular sets that were seen in multiple films, including the city block that the characters of uh, Mike and Carol, and I just kind of thought the names, I just saw that, Mike and Carol. (laughs) Could this be a Brady Bunch prequel? Is part of the infamous Universal Courthouse Square backlot. The same city block that Marty McFly uses to catch the lightning bolt in his DeLorean in Back to the Future in 1985. The title of the film, it was filmed as The Spider. And then just before completion, they changed it to Earth versus The Spider. And that was used for the main title in the film itself. The Fly was released and then became a huge hit for 20th Century Fox. So AIP said, well, gosh, we got to capitalize on this and decided to market it as The Spider. Even though when you watch the film, it still says Earth versus The Spider. I got to mention the music. Music is done by Albert Glasser. And I thought this was incredibly timely. We have a local 
radio station, national public radio station. It's called Kansas Public Radio. It's based out of Lawrence, which is about 30 minutes outside of the Kansas City metro. And they stream like most radio stations do these days. And they're also pretty much throughout eastern Kansas and a lot of substations. There's a program that they have on Friday nights called Film Music Friday. It's a two-hour program that features film music. And there's always a theme to go with it. And it's done by Daryl Brogdon, who is the host of the Retro Cocktail Hour. And he's also the host of the Cinema Go-Go double features that take place in Lawrence. And on the May 5th episode, he featured the music of Albert Glasser. And Albert Glasser composed upwards of 200 films, but it's all mostly B pictures. And so Albert Glasser is not a name that rattles off with famous composers. Nobody talks about Albert Glasser. In the program, Daryl Brogdon talked about how he looked, there's never been a book written about him. There's never been a documentary. Nobody really talks about him yet. His music is in so many movies, including quite a few from Bird Eye Gordon. And he mentioned Mr. Big in the show and played music from quite a few of the, uh, the movies that he did music in. Anything else about the spider? I hope we haven't spoiled everything. It's just got so many fun moments. I don't have anything else. This is a fun film. This is a, a film you can easily find. It's currently free on Amazon Prime with ads. You can get it on DVD. It's paired up with War of the Colossal Beast. So a pretty cool double feature there. Now the DVD is out of print. If you buy it, Amazon will want to charge you like 56 bucks. Don't do that. Just do some shopping around. You can get it for less than $10 on eBay. You can also find this one pops up sometimes on YouTube and you can probably find it on the archive.org. It's a fairly easy film to find. I would definitely recommend it. I enjoyed it. Glad that I finally saw it after all these years. I would gladly watch it again. What was he up to next? So after a very prolific two-year period of time, it would be 1960 before he does his next film. And he's definitely, it's a change of pace. He does The Boy and the Pirates, which stars Charles Herbert, the young actor from 13 Ghosts. An interesting film. I think it does feature music by Albert Glasser again, a good pirate score. Basically has to do with the young boy and he has a friend played by young Susan Gordon. He's fascinated with pirates and he finds a, a genie on the beach. A bottle washes up ashore. He opens it up. This genie's a little different. This genie's a bit of an asshole. Mm. Um, <laughs> this genie is like, he gives him his wish to go back to pirate times, but the genie says, well, I've given you a wish, but you know, you're going to stay here now. You get like so many hours, like 48 hours or something. And he says, and if you don't find your way back to the beach and the same exact spot where you found me, then you're going to spend the rest of your life in this bottle and I'm going to be free. Not Abu from uh, <laughs> Aladdin. You've got a pirate ship. You got pirates, and so Susan, Susan Gordon plays dual roles in this one. She plays a young girl in, in the present, and she also plays a young girl in the past. Uh, she's kind of forced to a act a little bit in this one, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I have to admit, she wasn't the greatest actress. Not horrible. I didn't dislike it. I didn't love it as much as I thought because I thought, oh, this kind of feels like it could be a fun-filled family film, which is what he was going for. It ends up lacking. It needed a little more adventure. It needed a little more humor. It's not even, not a bad film, but you know, worth checking out once. 
but probably not a film that I would go back and revisit. Have you ever seen The Boy in the Fire? I never have. Was there anything giant in it? Uh, well, no, but you had a little, little, little genie. So little oh, okay. Dude, oh, so. the genie was little? Yeah. It is on Tubi. Get it for free. He followed this up with the movie Tormented, which has Richard Carlson of Creature from the Black Lagoon fame in it. Essentially, he's engaged to get married and his former girlfriend shows up and she's got some blackmail going on. She basically wants him and says, well, you know, I've got some pictures or something that he did. Never really explains it, but it implies that there's something he did or maybe some pictures they took together. I don't know. She's going to blackmail him. You think he's going to kill her because he's like, well, you're not going to ruin my current life. They're in the lighthouse and she ends up falling to her death. But of course, she comes back as a ghost and begins to haunt him and kind of sets him down a path where he's just kind of going more and more crazy and starts doing crazy things. And Susan Gordon plays his future. I guess it'd be his future sister-in-law, but she's little. He's going to marry her older sister. The special effects hurt the film a little bit. There's some good special effects, the ghostly imagery, but then when the ghost decides to pop up as a head, then it's pretty obvious that that's a bad special effect. Then at one point he like tries to capture the ghost head Mm. and gets it caught up in a blanket and clearly it's a dummy head in there. That's pretty bad. I did like this movie, although you're really struggling, Michael, who am I supposed to cheer for? Because Richard Carlson, yeah, he he didn't save the girl because, I mean, she was like hanging on and he didn't save her. So it's like, well, he didn't kill her, but he didn't save her either when he could have. Obviously, not 100% of a nice guy. And he does eventually, spoiler alert, he commits a murder to kind of continue to cover up things. And then it looks like he's going to kill little Susan Gordon at one mm-hmm. point. I'm clearly not cheering for him. <laughs> I'm not cheering for Susan Gordon because she was kind of annoying at times. I'm not cheering for his fiance because she was just incredibly naive. Not cheering for her dad because her dad was mad because she was marrying a jazz musician. It's kind of like, I'm not sure who the hero of the film ends up being. And so it does come off as a little odd. Have you had a chance to see Tormented? Nope. Nope. We're hitting a run here where I haven't really seen this group of movies. I think we're past the peak for Mr. Big because now we're entering into where he's trying to do some different things. 1961, he does a pilot for a TV series called Famous Ghost Stories. Basically takes Tormented, edits it down to like 25 minutes or whatever, 30 minutes, and has Vincent Price as the host, introduces the story. I was unable to find the pilot, but I did find the Vincent Price introduction. It is very brief. Pilot didn't get picked up for a series. 1962, he decides to try his hand at... Uh, sword and sorcery film. So he does The Magic Sword, which stars Basil Rathbone as a evil wizard and a young Gary Lockwood as the hero of the piece. I enjoy The Magic Sword. You get to a big kind of climactic scene where the special effects budget hurts it a little bit. There's a battle with a two-headed dragon. That actually is better than, than you would expect, but... The dragon actually looks kind of cool and the way that everything is lit and stuff, you don't see its imperfections. Unfortunately, the dragon just doesn't do enough to be come across as menacing. Stop motion would have saved that scene and could have made the movie. 
Hmm. If they would have had more money to, to pull that off, if they couldn't have afforded Ray Harryhausen, I'm sure they could have bought somebody. It's a fun film. To me, it felt like something I would have watched on a Sunday or Saturday afternoon in the 1970s, kind of a lighthearted, hmm. more family-oriented film. And you haven't seen this one either. No, but you know what? This was the biggest grossing film at three theaters in Hawaii. <laughs> Did they have more than three theaters? In I don't know. Interesting. Worth checking out. Absolutely. 1964, he does a television pilot again. This one is called Take Me to Your Leader with Jack Albertson, who was the father from the Willy Wonka, or grandfather from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And also The Man in Chico and the Man from the 70s. Heavily inspired by My Favorite Martian television series, but looked a little bit cheesier. Uh, I couldn't find it complete online, but what I did find didn't really inspire me to seek it out. It didn't look that good and it didn't get picked up. So we get to 1965 and then we get Village of the Giants. So this is the first of two films in which he bases very, very loosely on the H.G. Wells classic Food of the Gods. Village of the Giants is a cult favorite. It is a film that basically deals with Ronnie Howard playing the genius, and he creates this substance that causes things to grow big. We get giant chicken or giant gooses, I guess, in, in this one, and giant teenagers who decide to run amok, uh, including a young Bo Bridges. We've got Tommy Kirk playing the hero of the piece. We've got Johnny Crawford in his post rifleman era and his teenage years. We've also got a young Tony Basil in her pre-Mickey days doing some dancing, some groovy music that, of course, Quentin Tarantino loved and used in Death Proof, I believe. And this is my second time viewing it. I got to say, I liked it a lot more this time than I did the first time. Yeah, there's all sorts of questions. This one, they grow big. It's like, how are they getting in and out of the theater? How are they getting enough food to survive? The perspection is off because people hand them food and then they're eating chicken out of buckets that's as big as human beings when they're because they're carrying people around and that doesn't make sense and it doesn't match up with what they just got handed you got to throw some of that out the window and just enjoy it for, it is incredibly cheesy. doesn't do justice to the HG Wells story, which I read and I'll talk about when we get to Food of the Gods. It does take a, a very small element from the original source material. And in that sense, there, there's parts of it that actually kind of play out because the teenagers, you know, so we're going to take over this town and this is going to be the beginning and nobody's going to push us around anymore. They're juvenile delinquents, and well, they do kind of get theirs in the end. I know you've seen Village of the Giants. What what thoughts do you have? I like it. It's a fun movie. Go into it with low expectations. It's lighthearted. It's fun, and and just get into the music and ah, the dancing can get a bit. Oh <laughs> man, how they didn't suffer whiplash. Uh, or... There, yeah, there's wow. some definite hard dancing. Going Holy on. moly! Several scenes and several rock scenes and. I did dig the theme music, the da 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 da. Yeah, it's it's cool. 1966, we have Picture Mommy Dead, featuring a now slightly older Susan Gordon, Donna Michi, and Zsa Zsa Gabor. Essentially, a young girl witnesses her her mother get killed and goes into shock, and there's a lot more to the story and some twists and turns along the way. 
fairly good flick, actually. I enjoy Picture Mommy Dead. It's not great, and there's certainly some major plot holes as the film progresses and as a big reveal is goes. But as it goes along, well, okay, it, it can get a bit annoying because the, the girl is just kind of in a constant state of shock and whining. So Susan Gordon can get a bit annoying at times. But I don't know. There was something about the movie that I did enjoy. Your expression. Yeah, I did. I watched it recently before it had nothing to do with this podcast and wrote about it on my blog and just very, very average. It did make a profit before it was even released. And that's because Avco Embassy, the, the studio sold it to ABC television. And it did kind of feel like some of the William Castle films from this time period. Yes. Very, definitely. I don't know which one inspired the other, but there was a definite William Castle feel for this time period. It's four years before his next movie. So we're in the 1970s now and definite change of pace for his next film. How to Succeed at Sex. <laughs> we get in this period of the 70s and 80s, and actually, I think really for the rest of his career, I hate to say it, but I, there's a few films that kind of go into a maybe a slightly sleazier side a little mm-hmm. bit. And maybe that's just all that he had available to him. This movie, How to, How to Succeed at Sex, he wrote and directed, but he did not produce. And it is about a man who is having trouble scoring with his girlfriend, reads a book about sex and seduction to get some pointers. (laughs) Don't really know anything else about this one. I didn't seek this one out, folks. I didn't I didn't try to find it. Jeff, how many times have you seen this film? Oh, multiple, multiple times. (laughs) Yeah, can't say anything more about this one. But his next film in 1972, I did check out and it's a movie called Necromancy. This one stars Orson Welles as a kind of a cult leader slash leader of a coven. And Pamela Franklin is the uh, woman in peril. And Michael Ontkeen, who people might not know by name, but might recognize him by, uh, he appeared in uh, the Rookies television series, plays her husband. With Kate Jackson, Dark Shadows Connection. (laughs) There we go. Okay, well, we'll take it uh necromancy i i wanted it to be better than it actually was but i'm glad i did see it i wanted more orson wells actually orson wells was really good um as that cult leader slash coven leader kind of role and we should have had more of him now i i think he just did this movie for cash he i don't think he was really invested in this film orson did a lot of that from this time period some of it was to fund his projects. And this was around the time period that he was making that movie, what the other side of the wind mm-hmm. that eventually he didn't finish, but did get finished a few years ago after his death, they took the existing footage and I forget the name of the directors. There's a couple people got together to finish that up. This film would have done better though with more Orson Welles and less Pamela Franklin coming across as distressed and, and kind <laughs> of whining it does this twist ending that I won't spoil, but it ends up being kind of bizarre. Apparently, this film was re-edited in the 1980s. They added a bunch of naked sex scenes with the coven and changed the ending around a little bit. And that's Apparently, what the version you saw or not? That's not the version I oh. saw, no. There was a little bit of nudity in the coven scene, but I think... But this was still had the title Necromancy. They changed the title for the 80. Mm. Sexed it up. I'm not sure that Burt Gordon was involved in that. Pamela Franklin, I think, commented that she saw that later on and said that it really 
change the film entirely. And they changed the ending. It's not a bad film. Again, not a great film. Worth checking out. I believe I found it on archive.org. You said you hadn't seen this, but you were interested in it. Yeah, I'm interested in that. Check it out. And I'm, I'm interested on in your thoughts. I felt like I wanted more. Now, the next film, 1973, I did. I've not seen, but I do want to see. It's called The Mad Bomber. It's about a serial rapist who might know the identity of a mad bomber. And it stars Vince Edwards and Chuck Connors. I love Chuck Connors, the Rifleman and Branded. And of course, by the 70s, he kind of gone down a different path. And he was in Soylent Green. He was a few years away from Tourist Trap, which is a movie I enjoy. Have you seen The Mad Bomber? I have not. I want to seek this one out. Yeah, I thought about it. It seems like it could be interesting. In between those two movies, well, at least in the book, he talks about he made a couple of Japanese commercials. Oh, okay. Kirk Douglas and Peter Fonda, not together, but separately. And it goes into a little deal about how, you know, part of these big stars, and this goes on to this day, as far as I know, big stars making commercials in Japan with the understanding that they will never be shown in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. So this brings us to 1976, and we're ready for our next film that we'll dive into a little bit deeper, and that is Food of the Gods, his second very loose adaptation of the H.G. Wells classic. But before we dive into that, we need to talk about what else was going on in 1976. That's right. We have whizzed through these years, through the decades even. We need to place it into context. What was going on? As always, we're going to take a look at the top 10 songs, this being for the week of June 19th, 1976. I struggled with a few of these. There was a song debuting really low on the Hot 100, like it debuted at number 96. Didn't seem very promising for this song, but it went on to become a number one hit. Play That Funky Music by Wild Cherry. The top 10 starts off at number 10 with I'll Be Good to You by the Brothers Johnson. It's a fun one. Get some of that 70s funky fashion going on with the Brothers Johnson. Number nine, a song I know you know, Afternoon Delight. Oh, yes. Vocal band. Love it. How can you not love Afternoon Delight? Yep. Number eight, uh, a song, definitely disco, and you might not know the name of the band, but I know you know the song. The band is the Andrea True Connection. More, more, more. Okay, there you go. Very good. Well, that's probably the only thing they sang. I don't know. Yeah, it really is about the only big hit that they had. More, more, more. Part one. Number seven, the Captain and Tennille shop around. Number six, Shannon by Henry Gross. The song at number five still gets plenty of airplay today, and that is Sarah Smile by Daryl Hall and John Oates. Number four, Love Hangover by Diana Ross. Oh, yeah. Number three, Misty Blue by Dorothy Moore. Number two, (laughs) big hit, Get Up and Boogie, That's Right by The Silver Connection. Yep. And that's the lyrics, folks. Get up. (laughs) The song at number one, I guarantee you know, and that is Silly Love Songs by Wings, as they Mm. were at this point. Paul McCartney and Wings eventually spent three weeks at number one. That Mm. is the top 10 from June 19th, 1976. Now, you might want to go to the box office 
see the movies and we'll take a look and see what was tops on June 23rd, 1976, a uh, little war film called Midway with Charlton mm-hmm. Heston, Henry Fonda, and a cast of thousands. And since around? I think so. Midway was a big production, bumped the following week by a film we have covered here on the podcast before, The Omen. Mm. the following week and spent eventually five weeks at number one before it was bumped on August 4th by The Exorcist. Exorcist got re-released in theaters and hit number one again. When you got The Omen playing in theaters and The Exorcist getting re-released, is it any surprise that Food of the Gods kind of got lost in the shuffle? Not a big surprise. However, I would have gladly gone to see Food of the Gods at the movie theater rather than stay home and watch television because, you know, it's the summer. And what did you get? Summers and, and television, especially in the 1970s, you got repeats and you got short run series that didn't get picked up during the regular season that were getting dumped in the summer and nobody cared for and got canceled in very short orders. Friday night, June 18th, 1976. If you were staying at home, you could turn to ABC and watch a repeat of the Donnie and Marie show with their comedic guests, Milton Berle, Mipsy Russell, and Paul Lynn. <laughs> After the Donnie and Marie show, you can watch a riveting documentary called Olympic Visions. A look at the 1972 Olympic Games it was originally titled Visions of Eight, released in 1973, featured different directors taking different looks at the Olympics. I would have read a book. Over at CBS, we had a Western called, no, not Gunsmoke, not Bonanza, it's Sarah, starring Brenda Vaccaro. Apparently before she started doing all those feminine hygiene <laughs> commercials, this was a, uh, had a very long run of 12 episodes. It was uh, followed up by a film that I have never seen, but I would probably have watched, The Culpepper Cattle Company from 1972, starring, amongst others, a young Bo Hopkins. Over at NBC, eh, it's probably the best bet of the night. You had a repeat of Sanford and Son, followed by a TV series called The Practice. This was a doctor sitcom starring Danny Thomas. It lasted two seasons, Mm. a total of 27 episodes. Came, it went, and never been seen or heard of again. It was followed by The Rockford Files, and Police Story. Not a banner night for television. June 18th, 1976. Probably better off going to the movies. And there was, you know, 1976 was a great year for movies because you also had number one for movies in Burnt Offerings Mm. starring Karen Black and Oliver Reed and Burgess Meredith and Betty Davis. Directed by Dan Curtis, Dark Shadows Connection. There you go. And you also had Carrie. Mm. Uh, Stephen King's first foray into feature films and a film we covered way back in episode number one, King Kong. The 1976 big year at the box office, including June 23rd. So that's what was happening in 1976 when Food of the Gods was released on June 18th. We were also celebrating the Bicentennial. Oh my gosh, yes. That was a big deal. That was, yeah, that was, was. a really... A very different time. Everybody was incredibly patriotic. In honor of our forefathers, we, <laughs> we, we, we 
Went to the theater to see Food of the Gods. Nothing more patriotic than giant rats. More frightening than his War of the Worlds. More imaginative than his time machine. Now, H.G. Wells' masterpiece of science fiction, The Food of the Gods. The terrifying tale of man fighting for his life against an ecology gone berserk. This is the last chance for an unsuspecting world against harmless animals and insects made huge and vicious by the food of the gods. Marjo Gortner. Pamela Franklin. Ralph Meeker. Ida Lupino. H.G. Wells, The Food of the Gods, for a taste of hell. Rated PG. Hunting on an island in British Columbia, professional football player Morgan and his friend Brian discovered giant wasps, chickens, and rats. Armed with rifles and homemade explosives, the two men and an eclectic group of people gathered at a remote farm attempt to put an end to a terrifying threat created by The Food of the Gods. The Food of the Gods, written and directed by Bert I. Gordon, starring Marjo Gortner. I love saying that name, Marjo Gortner. Pamela Franklin, Ralph Meeker, John Cipher, and Ida Lupino. It runs 88 minutes, was produced and released by American International Pictures. And I think we have a more specific date on this one, June 18th, 1976. Richard, I must point out that this was the winner of a competition. It was between this and Empire of the Ants. This won. So whatever people think about this segment, remember that you asked for it. (laughs) And I will offer up that for those of you who wanted Empire of the Ants, I'll be covering it on my blog by the end of the month. I think it's the very last movie. I think it'll pop up on May 31st. Thank you, everyone who voted. This was a movie that I wanted to see for a long time. I remember the commercials in the 70s for it. And for whatever reason, I've never seen it as the Oh, decade. I didn't realize that. This was first time? This was a first time viewing for oh, me. Oh, wow. And maybe after all these decades of wanting to see it, my expectations maybe were a little high, possibly because I was also reading the original 1904 novel, The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth by H.G. Wells. I wasn't finished with the book when I saw the film, but I think it had elevated my expectations. And that was probably a mistake because how many times does a movie do justice to a book? Very rarely because it's two totally different mediums and books can do things that movies can't and vice versa. You're not really restricted by budget when you're writing a novel. You can do anything. It's the theater, the imagination, so to speak, as long as you write descriptively and make sure that the reader is understanding the world that they're in, then you can take them anywhere in in a book. And the movie, you're limited by not only your script, but you're also limited by your actors, you're limited by your special effects. And I would like to go back and revisit this film at some point in the future, get a little distance from the reading of the book. Well, I warn you, because this is one I remember seeing when it came out in theaters, did not like it. I mean, even as a youngster, The special effects and the pace, I just didn't care for it. But as an adult, I have watched it many times. I have written about it. 
studied it, listened to the commentary. I kind of fooled myself into thinking I really liked it. I'll be honest, I wanted Empire of the Ants to win because I'm not as familiar with that movie. And I, I thought that would be more enjoyable. I, I waited to the last minute to watch Food of the Gods again. But it was nice because I could just sat back. I'm not going to take any notes. I'm not going to form any thoughts about it. I've done all that. I'm just going to see how it plays. And <laughs> I've gone full circle. I didn't care for it too much. There's good parts about it. And, and I think there's a lot there. But just as entertainment, it lacks a little for me. H.G. Wells' story, and I don't know if we want to dive into to what the story could have been or we sure. You want to do that now? Yeah, yeah. I'm very interested in the book. Village of the Giants credits H.G. Wells on an idea or something. They they don't like strictly say it's based on. They do something to make it sound. Well, in this one, they they say on on screen based on a portion. Yeah, which is accurate, which is very accurate. Village of the Giants takes an element from the original source material of people growing to giant proportions. And, you know, we do have the giant geese or whatever that play a part, ultimately get cooked. And this one, we're dealing mostly with the giant rats. I mean, we do have a giant wasp, but the wasps don't play a huge part in this. There's a scene, really, but mostly it's rats. We get lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of rats. The original source material, and I keep in mind, it's written in 1904. It's set in England, so... You've got to put your mind into what was happening in 1904 England. And H.G. Wells definitely infused some social commentary in, into the book, which some of it went over my head because I'm not a historian of 1904 British culture. If you are, then you will probably pick up on some of the things. The book itself is broken up into three books. It's called Book One, Book Two, Book Three, and each of those have individual chapters. But it's all one novel. And it centers on two scientists, Dr. Bensington and Professor Redwood. They're researching into growth studies, basically. And Bensington creates what he calls the food of the gods. In his mind, it's going to cause animals to grow so that we get more food. And that's kind of the original intent, really, behind it. Now, he eventually calls this formula... Heracleophobia 4. Why? I don't know. Food of the gods sounds much easier. They come up with a controlled experiment, and they're going to test it on chickens at a farm run by Mr. and Mrs. Skinner, who are characters in this film. They're not really the sharpest tools in the shed. They're slobs. It's mentioned that they're just not very clean people. And for whatever reason, H.G. Wells decides to give Mr. Skinner a speech impediment and give him a lot of dialogue (laughs) using that speech impediment. It was annoying. And I don't understand the reason for the speech impediment. Maybe it was some type of social commentary that I just didn't pick up on. What I found it was very annoying to read his lines because I'm trying to struggle. It's like I needed a decoder ring (laughs) to figure out what is he saying And I did not weep when Mr. Skinner eventually just kind of goes off into the sunset and dies. Mr. and Mrs. Skinner, they don't keep track of the food of the gods as tightly as they should. And so some of the food ends up getting exposed to rats, earwigs, which sounds horrific, and wasps. And of course, what happens is the beets start to run amok 
And plus, of course, they're feeding it to the chickens and the chickens are getting bigger, which is what was originally supposed to happen. But then I, there wasn't much thought in like, well, eventually, you know, how big are the chickens going to get? And the chickens are going to get hungry and the chickens are going to like start leaving the pen, which happens. And so you have giant chickens storming the nearby town. You've got rats. You've got also the plant life that's exposed to it. It also starts to grow. The wasps become a big factor. I'm terrified of wasps. So giant wasps in the countryside. I, I board up the house and would never leave. Yes, people leave. They get attacked by wasps. There are talks of trying to, groups of men going out to find the nest, the wasp nest in the woods. The society is starting to battle these giant beasts. Meanwhile, the substance is become known by the public and they start calling it boom food. Professor Redwood does the, you know, stereotypical stupid mad scientist thing. His son is not growing as much. He's kind of small and sickly. And so, well, let's give some of this untested substance to my son to help him through this little growth spurt that he needs to have. Then his son grows at a very quick rate and he can't wean him off of it because now they become kind of addicted to the substance. Mrs. Skinner eventually gets killed and Mr. Skinner goes off into the woods searching for his wife, never seen again. And it's believed that he was probably killed by the wasps. The growth is viewed as kind of a first step towards a new race. As the sun continues to grow, the public is now aware of it. And the substance ends up getting start being given to other people, including like a princess from another country. And the people start to grow to about 40 feet tall. Society decides to place restrictions. There's changes in society. Plant life is growing. The drug going public forces Bensington into retirement because he's almost lynched by a, a mad mob at one point. By the time we get to the third part of the book, we're getting heavy into the social commentary. 20 years passes in the course of this book. So it's not all just one time period. It's, it's worked 20 years and the world is changing and people are losing tolerance with the occasional outbreaks of giant bugs, the rodents and the giant people that have, have become kind of this separate little po uh, population. Enter the stereotypical politician who comes up with a plan to eliminate the food of the gods, as well as the giant people once and for all, because we can't have giant people because they're different than us. Kind of see where that's going. We have one character at this point is introduced, and he's, his name is Cattles. C-A-D-D-L-E-S, and he is the grandson of Mrs. Skinner. He decides to leave their reservation area because he wants to see the rest of the world. He goes into town to see what all the little people are about. They end up, of course, fearing him, and how dare you come into our city? You're not, we don't want your kind around here, and they kill him. That leads to a war that breaks out between what they call the littles and the giant people. Eventually, there's a truce because neither side can totally eliminate the other. The politician at this point starts being vilified because people are seeing that he's more so concerned with votes and his status and pleasing certain people than really pleasing everybody and taking care of what he should do. Very much something that we talk about every day, I think, now with politicians. Obviously, was a thing way back in 1904 and is even more so prominent today. 
the politician does come up with a proposal that the giants must live apart from the rest of humanity and never reproduce with the hopes that eventually they'll just die off. The offer is rejected. And this is about the place where the novel ends because it, it essentially implies that the conflict between the giant people and the littles is going to continue. By this point, the giant people are being referred to as the children of the food, which honestly would be a perfect title for a sequel, wouldn't it? The food of the gods and the children of the food. It's implied that the children are the future of humanity and that they will eventually win. They are the next natural evolution. And there's some really kind of interesting things. I think it's the cattle's characters looking to the stars and he's encompassing the stars and maybe he continues to grow and is growing into the heavens. And it gets a bit weird at that point. What I found very interesting in this, a much more complex story that deals not just with giant rats rampaging, mm-hmm. but also with the giant people and all of the political ramifications. I totally think this is a movie that could easily be remade today. Base it on the original source material. Don't stray from it, but just bring it into the 21st century. You could have the evil politician character. You you can make him a Trump-like character and people would kind of go for it. Kind of capitalize on the disenfranchised. The politician could focus on gosh, we got to get rid of these people because they're different than us. We got to build a border. We got to keep them away. You could totally go that route and add some modern social commentary into it. Plus deal with CGI, which could make the special effects a million times better than anything we got in the first two very, very loose adaptations. I do encourage people read it, seek it out. It's a bit difficult to make three parts of it with some material that's been written well over a century ago. It's always interesting to me what parts they pull out of a book for a movie. and um, Yeah, I mean, obviously we don't get dancing giant people in this, in this one because that wouldn't have been a thing in 1904. But it was interesting that they took that part for Village of the Giants. Yeah. yeah, let's turn them into teenager versus adult thing, which was not a thing in the original. It was the size factor and the difference. And here it was kind of like, well, the difference, because you're old and we're young, man, and it's our time. You're not going to boss us around. I mean, natural that they would do that, because that was something that the modern audiences would have totally bought into in 1965. Were there any professional football players in the book? There was not. There, there, was, there was no professional football players. You know, the characters of Mr. and Mrs. Skinner are kind of prominent in the first part of the story. And in this movie, what Mr. Skinner really isn't as prominent. I mean, he's played by actor John McLean, who was a character actor with 177 credits in some big movies, First Blood, In Cold Blood, Cool Hand Luke. But in the movie, I mean, he's kind of dispatched of rather early and kind of unceremoniously. Now, Mrs. Skinner, played by Ida Lupino, not in the peak of her career at this point, clearly, Um, She had been in High Sierra with Humphrey Bogart. She'd done lots of TV work, though, by this point, Twilight Zone. Uh, Dr. Cassandra in Batman, uh, not one of the top villains in Batman, admittedly. Three years earlier, she was in The Devil's Reign with William Shatner, which is always a fun flick. There are some similarities. I never got the impression that she was an incredibly brilliant or bright woman. No. She kind of played the kind of stereotypical woman in distress and 
she seemed like she was hanging on to her sanity, which I get, I admit, you, know, you got giant rats coming through the walls. I mean, you're, you're not going to be in your, your top form, most of us. And I have to say, Ida Lupino was also a director, and she made a movie in 1953 called The Hitchhiker that is really good. You talked about your thoughts on the film, and yeah, what's, what do I think about it? Uh, I tried to like it. I really did. It seemed very disjointed to me. I, I had a hard time following the flow of the story. Why does we care that, that Morgan is a football player? I don't know about that, but I do know Bert I. Gordon, his one or his one requirement for that character was that it was someone who was athletic. I always have that in the back of my mind. And when I watched it this time, there's a scene, I think it's when they're at the fence, maybe electrifying to try to keep the rats back. And he he, go, he pulls away from him. He does like a back flip, <laughs> get away from him, you know? And I'm like, oh, so that's why he needed to be guess, so he yeah. could do a back flip to escape from the rats. <laughs> I don't know that I would be doing acrobatics in that. No. That's the thing about this this time that I haven't had in my previous watches was laughing. The chickens. You see it and you can think, okay, that's a bad effect and you could not like it and blah, blah, blah. But I actually laughed <laughs> this time <laughs> when I saw those chickens. Not the split screen real chickens, but the chicken heads with beaks that didn't move and eyes that were stationary, you know, pecking at split screen or the rear projection. It it did not look good in 1976. When the rats are crawling on the cabin, it is so obvious that they're not crawling on the cabin. They are crawling on like a picture. Just like beginning of the end with the grasshoppers on the tall building. I know. It was more acceptable in the late 50s. Right. Even though 76 was now decades ago, but it stood out. Well, that's the disappointing thing about Bird Eye Gordon is that he didn't ever progress. I mean, he found his yes. stick and he stuck with it. And if you compare uh, these two movies, The Spider and Food of the Gods, he's so proud of the special effects. And when he was young and he figured out, you know, how to do that and then he put it in movies, he just like stuck with it. Maybe why it shows up so much is that it's in color. We're going to dog the effects, but they could be worse. They're really not that bad. It's just you can see the seams, like some of the split screen or even if they the middle section, the color is just off. It's And the thing about that I really noticed on Blu-ray is there are some rich, vibrant colors in this movie, and it's pretty. It's one thing that just strikes me. I don't know if that's new because of restoration and blu-ray and all that but i don't remember that from when i first saw it so i'm like well this is a good looking movie but then those special effects you just see they're like got a shade of gray over them and they kind of stick out and having just seen empire of the ants actually comes off better Hmm. now there are some some scenes where you got fake ants are coming up on people and that plays off as a bit cheesy and there's some scenes in empire of the ants where the ants you like they're being superimposed onto images and there's some odd motions where the ants look like they're crawling on midair. So the rat special effects were done by Thomas R. Berman. They were played apparently by children in costumes, the close-up shots where the rats are gnawing on people. And some of those scenes is like, it didn't look believable, unfortunately. It pulled me out at the moment. Yeah, but I think they were much, much better than the chicken heads. And oh, yes. the way they're moving, 
I think is pretty gruesome. And it seemed like maybe their, I don't know if their mouths were moving or not. They just seem more animated than the the chicken. And I thought the rat scenes, even though they were fake, were effective just because of the action that was happening. Yeah, there were some scenes that were better than others. There were some rat scenes that I, for me, totally pulled me out of the moment. There were some yeah. that were more believable. We do see a lot of scenes where rats appear to be getting shot, which of course had a lot of people concerned. Were they really getting shot? And supposedly they were getting shot with pellet guns as opposed to really getting shot. I don't know. <laughs> There's a few. Yeah, that's that really looks like they're shooting rats. I'm almost willing to bet real rats were shot. And I get it. We set rat traps all the time and rats are rodents and stuff, but you're capturing the rats to intentionally put them in a movie, then to shoot them. That's not going to fly in today's standard. It made me think about another movie we talked about recently, Day of the Animals, that had not giant rats, but regular rats. And I remember learning that they had tiny little harnesses they used for the rats so that when they were blown back or or whatever, you know, they were safely pulled back. This would have been about the same time as Day of the Animals. And there's no harnesses there. That's force of nature blowing those back. Yes. Yeah. Uh, supposedly one of the rat costumes was reused for a scene in the Star Wars holiday special. Oh, wow. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen the holiday special. So now I'm going to have to like, well, where did they use a rat head? I guess maybe one of the bar scenes. The end of the dead rats, the big dead rats were good. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was good. And I don't know if it was the same costumes or something different, but they looked pretty good. Yeah. The budget was only $900,000. Not huge. It did kind of tap into the ecology strikes back was all the rage in 76. And you're going to naturally want to tap into what's successful at the time. When we were watching Empire of the Ants the other night, there was definitely some Jaws-like music used throughout that film, which I had never caught before. Da-da, da-da, da-da. 77, yeah. They're still riding that Jaws wave at that point. And if it has anything to do with killer animals on the loose, yeah, they, they clearly were heavily inspired by that. There are some good things about this. There are a couple of legitimate jump scares. Rat will pop up at the window or the one where he broke through the front door. To me, those work for me as, as legitimate jump oh, scares. Yeah. yeah, definitely some good jump scares. Let's talk about some of the cast here real quick. Uh, we'll, uh, we're going to Marjo Gortner here in a second. Pamela Franklin played Lorna. She was in the Innocence Legend of Hell House, an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. Satan School for Girls, which we've covered on this in the ill-fated school episode from several years ago, as well as, as we mentioned, Necromancy in an episode of Night Gallery. There was a character of Bensington, so they did use that name. Didn't really seem to match with what was going on in, in the book. He's played by Ralph Meeker, character actor, was in a lot of stuff, Kiss Me Deadly, Dirty Dozen, a uh, 1980 flick called Without Warning, which also stars Jack Palance and Martin Landau. He was in The Evil Touch. He played something you and I just recently saw and talked about on a show that has yet to be released. He played the CIA agent Bernie Jenks in The Night Stalker. John Cipher played the character of Brian he was in lots of TV supporting roles. Biggest claim to fame was Masters of the Universe, besides Food of the Gods. Marjo Gordner, we've talked about him before, but always fun to talk about his... What did we talk about him before? In? What was he in? Earthquake. 
Oh, yes. Okay. (laughs) What a unique past he had. At the age of four, he was billed as the world's youngest ordained minister. He was a Pentecostal preacher, billed as a miracle child, and he ministered the gospel from memory, and he did faith healings because he had the power to heal the sick. He was drawing capacity crowds across the Bible Belt. He was the son of Vernon Gortner, who was an evangelical minister who preached at revivals, and it was his mother, Marge, who pushed Marjo into the world as a boy preacher. At the age of 16, one would say the age of reason. Marjo realized that it was all BS and that it was all faked and that he obviously became very disillusioned with this way he was deceiving the audience. So unbeknownst to his father at the time, he agreed to do a documentary in 1971 following a national tour of revival meetings during which time he was exposed as being a fake evangelical. The documentary was called Marjo, released in 1972. It was an Oscar-winning documentary. Introduced him to the world and also outed him as a fake. He left that business and went to Hollywood, which one would argue might not be much better, but (laughs) ended up having a moderate level of success for a while in the 1970s. A couple other little tidbits Michael Medved gave this the Golden Turkey Award for Worst Rodent Movie of All Time, <laughs> beating The Killer Shrews, for example, amongst others. Wow. Um, I don't know. The worst rodent movie of all time? I don't know. It might be a contender, but I'm not sure that it would be the worst. No. It did get a sequel called The Food of the Gods 2 in 1989, which had nothing to do with the original. They just used the title. I think it still had to do with giant rats escaping from a lab or something like that. But I don't think there was any connection with the first film. But that's about all I had on The Food of the Gods. You mentioned Empire of the Ants. What else do you have to say about that one? Okay, Mountain 77. Uh, I'll be covering it over at the blog at the end of the month. It was a revisit for me. I actually like Empire of the Ants better than Food of the Gods. It does suffer some of the same things that Food of the Gods did. There are some special effects that maybe don't hold up quite as much. But I thought the story was overall better and, and a little bit more believable. Once you get past the opening segment where they're just dumping off nuclear waste into the ocean and then it washes ashore and some ants get into this <laughs> looks like silver paint. Then it, it obviously takes a time jump because the container all of a sudden now looks rusted and now the ants have grown big. There's a big leap there in like, well, what, what was the time difference there? How many years passed? Why did nobody see this nuclear waste thing sitting on the beach? Why did it never wash away with the tide? You've seen Empire of the Ants. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, it's been a while. I rated it significantly lower than Food of the Gods. I don't remember why it's it's been a while, but I'm kind of opposite with you on that, at least from what I can remember, I, I do prefer Food of the Gods. We come to 1979, the next event in Mr. Big's life. He divorces his wife, Flora, on July 28th. Just about a year later, July 18th, 1980, he marries Eva Markelstorfer. <laughs> if I butchered that, I'm sorry to the Markelstorfer family. And they had a daughter. So he had a fourth daughter late in life, Christina. As he enters the 1980s, he is going into a 
very interesting period of his career. He does a movie called Burned at the Stake in 1982. It had to do with reincarnation and witch trials and possession. I did not see that one, so I don't have any thoughts on it. I did not see it, but I did read that that originally was actually going to be a documentary, a TV movie, and supposedly it was so strong that they released it theatrically. Interesting. Yes. So in 1983, he does the first of a couple teenage sex comedies. Honestly, that was all the rage in the 1980s, the teen sex comedies. Most of those movies at 90 minutes long would have nudity for the first time, typically at about 45 minutes. (laughs) Um, And then you'd get rid of the nudity by the time you get to about the hour and 15 minute mark, because then you had to go back to the plot and wrap it up pretty consistently. Although some movies, they'd show the nudity in the first half hour. That'd be a big deal. I know I'm a pervert, but I could tell you that. And I know that I'm not alone. I know there's a lot of other guys. Don't look at me. I know I'm not looking at you, but I know there's other people out there that I've heard people talk about it on podcasts. So I'm not alone. Anyway, he did a movie called Let's Do It. In 87, he did a movie called The Big Bet that starred Sylvia Crystal, who was in a variety of 1980s films. She was also, I believe, the original Emmanuel Mm -hmm. from the 1970s. 1989, he gets back to the genre, sort of, with a film called Satan's Princess, which was really a softcore supernatural cop thriller, kind of trying to put in several genres into one. As the 1990s rolled around, uh, his movies started to be featured with great regularity on Mystery Science Theater 3000. They actually did a total of eight of his films, which is more than any other director. In 2006, he had his first appearance at a Monster Bash. His daughter was with him, as well as Charles Herbert. In 2015, he makes his last film. By this point, he would have been in his 90s. He makes Secrets of a Psychopath with Kari Wurr. I know her from other films. I think she did one of the films in the Hellraiser series. She was also in the TV series Sliders, amongst other things. Here I will tie in the Rue Morgue magazine that I mentioned because this article is not only a retrospective of his movie, but it came out in 2015 and it was promoting this movie, Secrets of a Psychopath. Interesting. I just want to read how it got started. He said he was at a local Hollywood bookstore signing autographs. They were running clips of films on a big screen. And afterwards, I was asked by one of the attendants whether or not I have any new scripts. I said, oh, sure, I've got a fine script. And he said, how'd you like to make a movie? And he became my producer and we made Secrets of a Psychopath. (laughs) How did you intend to wrap it up? I've got a couple of quotes from the book that I think kind of put everything into perspective. I don't have anything for him post-2017 up until his death of this year, March 8th, 2023, at the age of 100. As we reflect on his life, he got a little reflective in his final chapter of this book, chapter 30. What's it all about? In looking back, my decision to go to Hollywood to make movies was, in reality, a foolish venture that had countless elements against my succeeding. I didn't know anyone in Hollywood to turn to for advice. Without a map, I didn't even know where the Hollywood studios were located. My experience making 16-millimeter TV commercials in Minneapolis was considered in Hollywood as next to being a rank amateur. And as thousands before me had encountered closed doors in their fruitless attempts to break through Hollywood's impregnable wall, what made me think I could do it? And then finally, 
kind of circling back. He, there's some stuff in between there, but he says, some people believe that the events in a person's life are preordained in a life script presented to him or her at birth. Others believe that destiny is in the driver's seat, pulling the strings that control the events of their life, like a puppeteer controls his puppets. And still others believe that the events in one's life are just a series of coincidences. I've asked myself many times, which of the influences possibly made it happen for me? The most important moment in which the promoter saw me with my movie camera and asked me if I'd like to make a feature movie with him, or perhaps it was none of the above. Rest in peace. Bird Eye Gordon. The guy started at nine years old making movies. Uh, my aunt gave me a movie camera. I made movies with neighborhood kids. And um, that's all I wanted to do was make movies. And as I grew up, I, um, at the University of Wisconsin, I, I had a newsreel that, of all the activities. And finally, I got to. Um, Hollywood, no, first of all, I started making independent films. And, uh, um, and then finally, I decided I had to go to Hollywood. And it took me about, it took me about uh, eight months in Hollywood, knocking on doors, trying to get in, get, to be able to make a movie. And, uh, so I had one friend that I made in Hollywood who had a, um, uh, a shop that made the titles for the movies. And he asked me uh, one day, Bert, do you have the, uh, a movie camera that you brought from Minnesota when you came here? A 16 millimeter? And I said, yeah, it's 16 millimeter, all right. He said, um, uh, could you bring it because we have a man who needs titles for the 16 million movie. Uh, no, for his movie. I said, but uh, it, uh, it's 16 million. He said, no problem, which is blow it up. So the next day, I was walking down the hall with the camera, and the man walked up to me and he said, is that your performance you have? He said, how would you like to make a movie? I said, well, of course I'd like to make a movie, but this is 16 millimeter. He said, no problem, it'll blow up. <laughs> and that's how I started making my first movie with a 16 millimeter blown up. And I can see myself right now outside of a theater with the movie. Welcome back. In the feast or famine world of home video releases, we're in a little bit of a famine. I know the last couple of months there has been a lot, and a lot of the things we've mentioned are just now coming out. You know, I don't want to repeat them, but a couple of new things. One that I'm sure everyone is excited about is coming out on May 30th from AGFA, Dracula the Dirty Old Man. You ever heard of that? <laughs> Uh, are people really, <laughs> really looking for that? Yeah, I don't know. I think I looked in to see what it was, and I don't know. Probably the most exciting news is from Mondo Macabro at the end of the month. Also, they have a, a trio of movies coming out, one of which is a Paul Nashi film, Night of the Executioner. Uh, not a horror film. I think an action thriller, maybe, crime drama. 
And the other two movies coming out at the same time for Mondo Macabre are one called The Fear from 1966 and one called Unquiet Death from 1970. Not familiar with either one of those, but if you are, they're coming out. 1972 gave us a movie called Private Parts. This is not with Howard Stern. This was a couple decades before him, but if you're interested in that, coming out June 6th. And then the big news probably is The Wicker Man, five-disc collector's edition is coming out in September from Studio Canal, and that is a Region B set. So you would need a all-region DVD player or Blu-ray player in order to watch that. But that looks like a big, beautiful set of any possible version or configuration of it The Wicker Man. That absolutely you does. And somebody gave me their old... <laughs> Region free Blu-ray, blue Blu-ray, Blu-ray player. <laughs> as they pushed me down the rabbit hole, laughing maniacally. Yeah, I was really excited when I saw that, and then kind of sad when I saw it was Region B. And now I'm excited again because that will be added to the collection. That's an absolute must. You skipped over something that's coming oh. up. It was originally supposed to come out at the end of May, but then they it got just bumped to June 13th, but will still be timely and probably before our next episode gets released or right about the time. And that's from Indicator, the Mexico Four Sinister Tales from the Alameda Films Vault, 1959-1963 box set. That includes The Black Pit of Dr. M, The Witch's Mirror, The Curse of the Crying Woman, and The Brainiac. It looks so good to get good prints of those four classic films and then uh, this was recently announced. I think it wasn't it, Joe Carson, that shared it with us uh, on the Facebook group page. The Giant Gila Monster from 1959 is coming out on Blu-ray. Yeah. The studio, a little bit maybe of a discrepancy. The, the write-up says Film Detective. It has all the looks of the Film Detective, but yet the, the logo on the cover says Film Masters. Maybe they're a related company. I'm not sure. Wasn't sure about this. I've never seen it. However, they are including the Killer Shrews with a commentary. So I think I will have to uh, invest. So they're pairing it up with Killer Shrews? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why did I not notice that? Okay. I I can't believe you've never seen the giant Gila monster. It's a fun one. And I've got a a quick birthday and a quick anniversary. Did I miss any movies coming out that you want to mention? I don't think so. All right. I think you covered it. Well, on May 17th, 1946, The Cat Creeps. That is a release that I just got today from Vinegar Syndrome, actually. And I just want to do a shout out of some of our other podcasting friends and, and episodes I've enjoyed recently. First of all, Hammerama did Revenge of Frankenstein. Yes. That was their most recent episode. I don't have the episode number. It's probably in the thousands if you're counting uh, Diecast as part (laughs) of that. Well, and a special guest in that one, too. That was uh, Dominique Lamsey. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, that was such a pleasure to listen to. And Stephen Alistair, you can take this as indirect feedback for your episode. Dominique was laughing and having such a good time. She's funny to start with, to hear her having such a good time talking to Steve and Alistair in their humor. It was just, it was really a fun, refreshing episode to listen to. Uh, Our friends at Discover the Horror, number 42, 
talked about the universal Frankensteins. They went through the first four, Frankenstein, Bride, Son, and Ghost. The Bloody Pit, number 171, Big Bug Movies of the 50s. Bill Watches Movies, number 43. Our friend Bill Mize did Scanners from 81. I'll give a shout out to Bill because he gave us a very nice shout out in his most recent newsletter, including a link to send people our way. Thank you, Bill, for that. Right back at you. I know you were thrilled, Richard, about B-Movie cast number 512, The Mesa of Lost Women. I remember that and The Incredible Petrified Forest are the two movies you always give as examples of ones that almost broke you. I saw their covering up. I was like, oh, no, no, that guitar riff that just plays ad nauseum in that movie will send send the average person down a path of insanity. And then finally, and this will be a segue into something I think you want to say over at Terror at Collinwood, a a two part episode, number 53 and 54. They talked about the unproduced Dark Shadows screenplay that became the Johnny Depp movie. So this is the original one by John August. They somehow have their hands on it. They're not allowed to copy it or distribute it, but they go through it pretty much word for word. And it's very interesting to see what could have been. Interesting. uh, Regardless of how you feel about the Johnny Depp movie, it, it could have been something very different and not necessarily positive. There are some things that they found could have been equally questionable. But that leads me to want to congratulate Penny Dreadful at Tara at Collinwood for her winning of the Hall of Fame, right? Yeah, she was Hall of Fame. Yeah, she was inducted into the Hall of Fame. And I believe the podcast got either one of the runner ups or honorable mention. She was in running for podcast of the year, as we were and many others and a very full category. And so it's awesome that she got recognized in that way. Congratulations. Congratulations to all of the Rondo winners, those that we know we thanked. And I will thank again those who nominated us to to get us in the category we didn't win, but it was a thrill to be nominated. So this brings us to what are you working on? I am going to defer this time. I don't have anything new or particularly interesting. It's just the same old, same old. But I wonder, and I don't want to take away that opportunity if you want to do that, but I do want to sort of announce the news about Monster Bash, or you should announce it, I guess. I I will. I I will just start off by saying that once again this month, I'm covering extra films from uh, Mr. Big over at my blog, monstermoviekid.wordpress.com. Maybe a few thoughts that I didn't mention here and just find some tidbits and trivia, what have you. Check out my blog accordingly. Now, (laughs) a series of events, and I won't go into all the crazy details behind the scenes, but the last week, the stars and planets have aligned, and I'm going to Monster Bash. After all, I didn't think it was going to be possible. Things have lined up accordingly, and now I'm able to attend this year's Monster Bash. So the Classic Horror Club podcast will be well represented by both of its hosts all three days. I'm looking forward from my free tacos at the Mexican monster movie night and the free slice of cake. I'll probably be watching the drive-in movie outside. And mostly I'm looking forward to to seeing the the friends that we know. I won't be guilty that I'm the only one of the two of us there. If you are a listener of the podcast and will be 
at Monster Bash, seek us out. We'd be more than happy to meet you and thank you in person for being a listener. I'm looking forward to Monster Bash. We kind of talked offline. I hope we come up with some, not really an event, but some type of little get together or something. I just hope we have a chance to say hi and meet in person. And if you are close and haven't thought about going to Monster Bash, well, what more reasons do you need? That's right. This should tip you over the edge. It'll obviously tip you over the edge. That's not the only place we're traveling to this summer, Rich. It is not. It's that time of year again. We are going back to the drive-in. It's hard to believe this is our fourth annual summer at the drive-in, which means we did the first one in 2020, which kind of boggles my mind that we pulled it off in that pandemic year. We've got some interesting movies lined up for you, some fun stuff. It's safe to say there'll be some Godzilla along the way. That's become kind of tradition. We're kicking things off next month with a shock arama as we will be heading back to the spring of 1966 and we'll be going to the Bel Air Drive-In in, is it pronounced for Versailles, Indiana? Versailles? Uh, I think we've been over this before and they call it Versailles, Missouri, so it might be Maybe Versailles. it's Versailles, Indiana. I don't know. We'll have to figure that out beforehand. I Probably Versailles is too fancy. We'll say Versailles, Indiana. <laughs> anyway, the Bel Air Drive-In, spring of 1966, and a Double feature of Billy the Kid versus Dracula and Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. What more could you ask for to kick off the summer? If you want to play along at home, these movies are actually easy to get a hold of. Billy the Kid versus Dracula is available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber. You can also rent it on Amazon, Apple, or YouTube. You can also get it absolutely free on Plex and Tubi with ads, or you can also get it free with no ads on Canopy. Jesse James Meets Frankenstein's Daughter is public domain, sort of. I'm not sure how public it really is. You can find it on a variety of DVD sources for less than $10. You can also rent it on Amazon or watch it for free with ads on Plex or Tubi. Billy the Kid, Dracula, Jesse James, Frankenstein's monster, daughter, and the Mad Monster Party is happening next month as we head to the Bel Air Drive-In for the fourth annual Summer at the Drive-In. So we've talked about the past, present, and future. You got anything else before we sign off? I don't know what more we could possibly (laughs) get back in this episode. All right. Well, we'll call the meeting to a close then, and we're going to go out with a song called Food of the Gods. And there's actually several songs called Food of the Gods, not covers. They're individual songs. This one is by a group person, whatever, called Freak. It's a little harder rock than I would normally play, but we got to cater to all audiences, right? I know you like that for, for on occasion. I do, I do. It's from their album, Food of the Gods. Don't actually know where you can get it, but you can listen to the song on YouTube. Good a place as any. Everyone, thank you for listening. Take care, everyone. Take care.